Would you turn, please, to Luke chapter 24 and verses 36 to 53? Uh, if you're going to follow this morning, you're really going to need that in front of you. Luke 24 verses 36 to 53. It may help you also to see the notice sheet for a structure. Um, I have to admit, I'm trying to pack quite a lot in this morning. So I hope you're alert. Hope you're feeling awake. Uh, stand up if you need to, to wake yourselves up, because we've got some great stuff to hear from the words of Jesus uh, before he returned to heaven. Here in Luke 24 is a group of people met together and they've locked themselves away in a room, away from the outside world. They're a bit afraid of the world out there and they're confused. They don't know what's going on and they don't know what their purpose is. For the past three years, they've been going around as a group with Jesus. But now Jesus has died. So what's the purpose of the group? What's the point of staying together? Maybe they won't stay together. Maybe the group will break up and they'll go back to their lives as they were before. Well, that's them then. But it's sometimes the church today. We're a group of people that meets. Sometimes we keep our distance from the outside world. We're a bit afraid of them out there. Sometimes we're confused. What is going on? The world seems to be in chaos. And sometimes we wonder, what's what's the purpose of the church? Is it to keep meetings going? Is it to do some good in society to help the needy? Is it to run children's clubs? Is it to spread the gospel? Uh, what, what is the purpose? And actually, how do we do it in this time of, well, it isn't lockdown now, is it? But we're still under restrictions. And the answer to all that is given here in Luke 24, verses 36 to 53. Here Jesus gives his I'm going to call it his manifesto for the church, for children and others who don't know. Manifesto is a political party writes out what they're going to do, what they think should be done. And here is Jesus manifesto for his church. And it is all centred on him. Now, this should be of direct concern to you. I hope this is uh, keeping your attention. Because the church is a group of people. It's not an organisation up there that you sit separate from. Coming to church should not be like going to a cinema. You go to a cinema, you enjoy the show, but the cinema is an organisation separate from you. And church should be not like that, a, a, an organisation separate from you, because church is the people. Uh, and each person can't say, oh, the church should do this as if it's a separate organisation, because if the church should do it, it means, well, we should figure out who among us should do it. And if you're not in that group of people called the church, then well, the Bible's pretty blunt. It says, in that case, you're in the kingdom of darkness. The Bible only gives two options. There's being outside of Christ under God's anger and there's being in Christ under God's loving care. And if you're in Christ, then you're in his church. So to hear Jesus manifesto for the church should be of concern to you. So let's get straight into it now. Let's hear Jesus gives the churches, first of all, head. Verses 36 to 45, Jesus gives the churches head. You see, the church depends on the risen Jesus. As we read the Gospels, we find after Jesus had died, the, the disciples were understandably confused. 
They were at a loss to know what to do. In John's gospel, they even went back to being fishermen. Until they were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. If Jesus was still in the grave, we too would be just a group of confused people with no purpose. But he has risen. And verses 36 to 45 is Luke giving us more evidence for this. He's already given us evidence, but he knows it's a big ask to ask us to believe it. So he gives more evidence and he shows here Jesus was not just resuscitated, but was resurrected. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. This is something new for humanity. This is this is not just they didn't happen to notice him slip in through the door. Uh, we put this with the other accounts and we find that Jesus was able to do things that us limited fallen humans can't do. Jesus wasn't like Lazarus or the widow of Maine's son, just raised back to life as it was before. This is a new type of human with new powers. The fall has no hold on him. But he's still human. He's still flesh and blood. He's not a ghost. Verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And so to prove it further, he takes a fish and eats it in front of them. And so Luke shows the reaction we would expect from that. Verse 41. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, (laughs) it's this funny mixture. Why would they be full of joy and amazement if they didn't believe that's Jesus? But then they can't really believe because they're so full of joy and amazement. And that might sound confusing to you, but I expect you pick up the feeling. I think it's a bit like this. Have you ever been given a present and you can see it in front of you? And you've heard that person say this is for you, but it's so good. You can hardly believe that expensive, unexpected present is really for you. You can see it. You can hear the words, but you can't really take it in. And that's them. Yes, they can see. They can hear. They can touch. But it's just so amazing. And they're so joyful. They're just like their minds are a buzz. And that's what moves them and us from being a group of confused, afraid people to being the joyful church. At least the joyful church we should be. The church depends on the risen Jesus and the church is ruled by the risen Jesus. Have a look to see what do the disciples say in verses 36 to 45. What do the disciples say there? Well, if you quickly scan through those verses, you will find nothing said by the disciples. Nothing. Jesus says it all. He doesn't turn up and lead a discussion. What shall we do next? Who thinks what? Let's have a vote on it. He just tells them this is what is happening. This is my manifesto for my church Because, of course, he is the head of the church. And that's still the case today. This really must shape what we think the church is. 
So, for example, if you go down Watermead Lane, I'm sure many of you know Watermead Lane, and you know that down there you'll find the Brush Bowls Club. Now, I presume if you're part of the Brush Bowls Club, you can give your opinion on what the club should do and which competitions it should enter and who should be part of it and what socials to have. And you could probably each give your opinion. Because it's a club. But the church is not a club to be run according to our opinions. It's the body of Christ and he is the head and it's to be run exactly as he says. I hope that is how we approach church meetings. The church depends on the risen Jesus. The church is ruled by the risen Jesus and the church is for the risen Jesus. Now, in a, in a minute, we're going to look at verses 46 to 49 and get an agenda for the church. And, and we could do that and we could be keen on being a thorough, correct and active church that gets on and does these things. And forget who it's from and who it's for and who it's all about. And however correct and thorough and active we might be, we would have missed the point. Because the church is for the risen Jesus. Now, it's worth testing ourselves on this because we easily forget that because we have so many other motives and activities to crowd that out. So uh, this might sound strange, but test yourself this way. Imagine that you started to believe that Jesus is still dead. That might sound odd to you, but it's not very hard Because all it means is starting to disbelieve the resurrection. Imagine you started to think it can't be. It's just that's just too much of an ask. It's no, I I don't really think the evidence is good enough. People don't really rise from the dead. And you started to believe Jesus didn't rise, which means he's still dead. Well, would you carry on with your church activity? You don't believe that Jesus is the risen saviour anymore, but would you carry on with your church activity? Maybe for the social side, maybe most of your friends are in the church and you don't want to walk out on your friends or lose your friends. Maybe because it gives you a purpose for life. And okay, you no longer believe Jesus is really risen, but you want that purpose. Maybe, well, it gives me a moral basis and I don't know what my morals would be without the Bible. Maybe, well, it's a good response to the culture wars. Maybe you enjoy the experience of coming to church and of worship. Maybe it's your identity and your roots. Perhaps even your family goes back for generations in the church. Would you carry on your church activity for any of those or any other reason? And if you would, you're missing the heart. The heart of the church and the heart of the Christian is devotion to Jesus, not an idea or even a person from the past, but Jesus alive now. So we've got to get this foundation right first. Jesus gives the church its head, its living head. But then secondly, Jesus gives the church its theology. Now we move into verse 46. The church has more than a vague, as long as you love Jesus, that's all that matters. 
I'm afraid to say there's a lot of that thinking around and it often covers people loving a Jesus they've made up to suit them. And Jesus doesn't allow that. He gives us definite things to believe, a theology. Theology basically means a system of beliefs. And verse 46 is a good summary. Verse 46. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Uh, There's quite a lot packed in there. And I'm just going to skim over it. Jesus gives a theology that is rooted in scripture. Verse 46, this is what is written. That was a common phrase on the lips of Jesus. It is written. This is what is written. Have you not read? Jesus was so often talking about the Bible as they had it then. He said so much about the Bible, actually. I've got a little book called What the Son of God Said About the Word of God. Uh, It's a great little book to show you. You can establish from the words of Jesus that scripture is true, that it's from God, that it's our authority, that it's enough, that it is clear. We don't need some pope to tell us how to understand it. Jesus made very clear that the guidebook for his church and his followers is the Bible. And this theology he gives us is all centered on the Christ. Verse 46 again. This is what is written. The Christ It's all about him. The church's theology is not centered on you or on me or on the latest issue in society. Oh, yes, it's very good for you and for me. And it answers whatever is the latest issue in society. But only we only get those right if we keep the center is Christ. And Jesus gives us a theology that is rooted in scripture, centered on Christ and all depends on his suffering and rising. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now, think about this. Jesus has not got long with his disciples. He doesn't say much to them. He selects what matters most. And here he says what matters most is he suffered and rose from the dead. Now, that is very significant. Uh, Let me try to show it to you this way. Think of biographies. Do you like reading biographies? Biographies are always top of the bestsellers because it's interesting to read people's lives. Someone has kindly lent me the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Very interesting. I'm reading about, well, I've read about his family background. I've read about his childhood. I've read about his education and his work and his relationships. 30 something years old and gets engaged to a 16 year old. That's interesting. I've read about his involvement in a plot to assassinate Hitler. I've read about him being arrested by the Gestapo. And I haven't yet read about him being executed. That will be coming. But there's been a lot of ground to cover first. Now, compare that with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. People talk about them as biographies of Jesus, but they're not really. If they are, they're very odd biographies. Two of them don't tell you about his birth. They tell you almost nothing about his childhood. None of them tell you anything about his teenage years or his 20s. They don't tell you about his work. They don't give you a flavour of his daily life, ordinary daily life. 
They tell you a fair amount, about 30 to 33. And then they all go into slow motion and focus with detail on his suffering and his rising from the dead the third day. Now, even that way the Gospels is writ- are written is showing their main aim is not to provide an example to follow. Oh, yes, he is an example to follow, but that's not their main aim. If it was, well, we'd have all sorts of detail about how to follow the teenage Jesus, how to follow the workplace Jesus. Instead, their main aim is to show the suffering and risen Christ we must trust. Here in verse 46, Jesus says, here's the church's theology. It's rooted in scripture. It's centered on Christ. And it all depends on him suffering and rising from the dead. Jesus gives the church's head. He gives the church's theology. He gives the church's purpose. Jesus now sets out the purpose of the church in verse 47. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, this verse doesn't tell you everything the church is to do. Read Luke's volume two called Acts and we find the church caring for the needy, helping widows, giving a lot of attention to building up believers in the faith. So this isn't all the church is to do. But it does tell us the centre and priority for the church. And verse 47 summarises it as this salvation for the world. If you look at verse 47, can you see that's a fair way to summarise it? Salvation for the world. Salvation. This is all about being saved, saved from sin and guilt, saved from being an enemy to God. Notice the way Jesus describes salvation. Two words. What are his two words for salvation? Repentance and forgiveness. Jesus says the church's message is not being saved from poverty. The church's message is not being saved from illness. The church's message is being saved from sin and guilt. That does lead to being saved from poverty and illness, by the way. That will result in being saved from poverty and illness and every other problem, but not now. Better than anything any health and wealth gospel preacher offers you, but later when Jesus returns. So if you listen to preachers and don't hear from them about sin and forgiveness and are never told by them about your need to repent, Those preachers are not preaching what Jesus says. Stop listening to them. Did you get that? If you listen to preachers and they're giving you a nice message, but it never tells you you must repent and they downplay sin and therefore the need for forgiveness. They are not giving the message of Jesus. You need to stop listening to them. Jesus makes it clear and simple that salvation involves telling people to repent. The church's purpose is to call people to repent, to turn from their sins to God, to turn from trusting in themselves to trusting in the risen Jesus. So if there's anyone listening who hasn't yet repented, 
the thing the church needs to do for you. I, I wonder what you think the church should do for you, what the church should give to you, what service the church should offer you. Here's here's the number one thing the church should tell you. Repent. I must now tell you repent. If you say, well, what does that mean? What do I need to do? Well, that's a good question. And I'll answer it with with a story that I've told at least two times before at Hollywell. But my job is not to be original. My job is to get you to repent. So, children, do you like going on holiday? Hoping despite coronavirus to get a summer holiday. Imagine you're on holiday and your parents decide we're going to go for a nighttime walk. And you go and they drive up onto the coast and you're going to go for a nighttime walk. And there, there's no street lamps and the moon isn't out and it's really dark. And you get out of the car and you run off. But your parents know that there's a cliff ahead and it's pitch black and you're running towards it. What are they going to do? Well, the obvious thing is to shout, stop, stop, stop going that way. You're heading to a cliff. Stop. Turn round and follow my voice back to me. And that's a picture of repentance. Because if you're not in the Lord Jesus, forgiven by him, you're running towards a cliff, the cliff of God's judgment of hell. And you need to stop and you need to turn your way. From thinking all is fine, from trusting yourself to seeing that you're a sinner and your trust needs to be in Jesus. And you need to follow his voice. Listen to his voice and turn back to him. And instead of going your way, follow him. Have you done that? Will you do it now? What's the point, really, of carrying on involvement in church, listening, singing a bit later if, well, you're not going to repent when the number one purpose of the church is to call you to repent? And to give you the promise of forgiveness. Now, that means we must show people this is their number one need. We must show them their sinfulness and God's holiness and God's anger against sin. We we can't tell the gospel without telling people these things, because however much people might be attracted to Jesus, they haven't got the gospel if they don't feel their need for forgiveness. And we can promise them complete forgiveness and total wiping out of their sin and permanent And complete acceptance by God. That's what we've got to offer. And that's what we must tell. It's salvation and it's salvation for all the world. Notice verse 47 will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, children, do you know this? What happens if you drop a stone in a pond? What do you see on the surface of the pond? You drop the stone in and you see circles moving outwards, moving outwards from where you drop the stone in the pond. And Luke's volume two that we call Acts is the story of circles moving outwards. The news of salvation being taken in ever increasing circles, just like on the surface of that pond. Uh, The stones dropped in. The gospel is dropped in in Jerusalem. But then it moves out to Judea. And then out to Samaria 
then out to the nations next door, then out across the Mediterranean, and then out to the ends of the world, breaking new ground, taking the message to more people groups, reaching the unreached. That should be on our hearts. That should be so important to us as a church. Hollywell has sent missionaries in the past. But it should matter to us that we we should want that we should send them again, that it's not just we support the ones we've sent in the past, but we're looking to send them in the future also. Oh, yes, we must reach our area. Yes, it's right. We're concerned for our estate, but we must also have that all nations concern. By the way, this is still all about Jesus. Uh, Children, do you know what a verb is? Learned at school about verbs doing words. Well, verse 46 says, this is what is written, the Christ will. And then there are three verbs. Uh, Back in the original language, three verbs follow. This is what is written, the Christ will. And the three verbs are suffer, rise and be preached. The Christ will suffer. He will rise. He will be preached. And then people will be called to respond by repenting and will receive forgiveness. Do you see uh, what that means? It means it's not we have a method to preach salvation and it just happens to involve Jesus. It's we have a savior and we preach him. And the result is people repenting and receiving forgiveness. It's all about him. He gives us our head, our theology, our purpose And fourthly, our method, our method. How will this salvation be taken to all the world? Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Very simple. People. That's how it will be taken. People who were witnesses of Jesus. People who could say we saw him. We heard him. We ate with him. We touched him. We knew him. And notice him, him. They're witnesses of him. Luke's volume two, the book of Acts, its theme verse is chapter one, verse eight. Chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We'll come back to that in a minute. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. There's those ever increasing circles. But did you notice you will be my witnesses? How does that apply to us today? Well, this witness has been reliably handed down to us. Thousands of ancient manuscripts have been found that show we have what the original eyewitnesses wrote. It's been passed on to us for us to believe and us to pass on to others. It's for us to pass it on. Now, I'm sure you've all uh, seen this. A TV programme ends, but it ends with the criminal uncaught. It ends with the problem unsolved. And the programme ends and the screen goes black. And across the screen in big letters come the words to be continued, to be continued. Well, Luke's gospel is like that. It ends There in verses 50 to 53, effectively with a message to be continued. And of course, it's continued in Luke's volume two, we call Acts. 
But you get to Acts last chapter, and it's a very well written chapter that in, in clever ways is giving the message to be continued. The story is still to be continued by us. By you and me, we are now the witnesses. We pass on their message and we pass on our experiences of its truth. Jesus gives the church's head, theology, purpose, method, and then lastly, the church's power. Power. Verse 49. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Power is essential. Have you ever put up curtain rails in your home? Putting up curtain rails looks like a simple job, but it can be a right pain because you've got to drill into the wall. And sometimes you find you're drilling into the concrete beam over the over the window. And that is really hard. So you get your tools and you've got a good quality drill bit and you measure it up and you mark it up and you're all ready to drill. And there's a power cut and you've got no electricity. Now, some people don't be clever and say, oh, I've got a cordless drill. OK, if you've got a cordless drill, imagine your battery's flat. Whatever it is, you've got no power. Will you carry on the job? You've, you've gone to effort. You've got it marked and measured. You've got a good quality drill bit and you can push that drill hard. You're a strong person. Will you manage without power? <laughs> Not at all. No chance. You just cannot do it without power. And to get people who love sin to turn from it and to persuade sceptical people to believe Jesus rose and to change people's priorities so they view forgiveness by God as their number one need. And to give new hearts, because that is what is needed to those whose hearts are hard as stone and dead as a corpse. These are things we cannot do without power. And so Jesus tells them in verse 49, wait for the power to come. And Acts chapter one makes it crystal clear this power is the Holy Spirit. In fact, other parts of the Gospels make it crystal clear this power is the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter two tells us the Holy Spirit has been given. We don't have to wait in Jerusalem any longer. Pentecost has happened. The Spirit has been given. But move on in the New Testament and you find we can't from that say, well, the Holy Spirit is always around and he'll always tag along if we get our methods right. I think quite a lot of evangelicalism has this sort of attitude. All of the attention is on getting our methods right. And if we do, we think the Holy Spirit automatically tags along. But no. That's not what we find in the New Testament. We must pray for his work. We mustn't presume on his work. We mustn't think if we preach OK, he's sure to tag along. We need to depend on him. We must regard preaching or any attempt to tell the gospel without consciously, prayerfully, depending on the Holy Spirit to work. As just as foolish as trying to drill into that wall for your curtain rail with a power cut. You can't do it. You need the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, Please do notice this is still so Christ centered. In John 16, when Jesus promised he'd give the Holy Spirit, he said he'll come and tell you about me because that's what he loves to do. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And what's the result? Peter preaches a sermon. And what's the sermon all about? Not about the Holy Spirit, about Jesus. It's a sermon that from start to finish is all about magnifying Jesus. Well, if the church were dead, sorry, if Jesus were dead, the church would be dead, too. The church would be like the disciples early on that first Sunday morning. A confused, directionless group of people hidden away from the world because they're afraid of it. But he's alive. And so those disciples are utterly changed. Verse 52. Then they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. He's alive. And so they worship him because he's God and they are full of joy because he's great. And they praise God because they've got a savior who's the risen Lord. I think that I love Luke's gospel and I think that this ending is wonderful. Jesus gives this great manifesto for his church. But we will have missed the point if we think it's just a program we go out and do. And that's it. Just as long as we do it and we're faithful and we're correct and we are active and we've stuck to the program. But no. Luke's biggest concern and God's biggest concern through Luke has been to show us Jesus. To show us Jesus, to fill us with worship of him. Joy because of him and praising God for him. And then, then will be the church that's as Jesus describes here.